0: This just in, you were looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story, obviously calling our sources and trying to figure out exactly what happened, but clearly something relatively devastating happening this morning there, the south end of the island of Manhattan.
1: Passes. At least one levee has broken in New Orleans, leading to some localized flooding, but there could be far worse still to come as the storm surge and as the rainfall from, from uh, Hurricane Katrina hits. In Alabama, the National Guard has been dispatched.
2: My name is Alexander Badgett. This is the Bankster Podcast, Season 3, Last Resort presented by centralverse.org. This is episode five, Terrorists and Hurricanes. In the previous episode, we talked about crises caused by companies that had become too big to fail. On today's episode, we shift to a different kind of crisis, single event shocks to the country and its people. As indicated in the intro, the two examples I'll narrate are the 9-11 terrorist attacks that brought down the Twin Towers in Manhattan, and Hurricane Katrina that devastated New Orleans. Although it's been nearly 20 and 15 years respectively, my heart still goes out to the families of individuals killed or hurt in these tragic events. First responders, healthcare workers, and volunteers performed incredible and heroic work. In both instances, the Federal Reserve took important steps to mitigate the spread of the damage to the financial sector, both on Wall Street and Main Street. So what role does the Lender of Last Resort play during a crisis like a terrorist attack or a natural disaster? Well, that will be today's episode. One of my favorite covers of The Economist magazine depicts the painter Rembrandt's famous 1632 oil on canvas, titled The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Tolp. Seven colleagues gather round and watch intently as Dr. Tolp, professor at the Amsterdam Anatomy Guild, walks them through the anatomy of a cadaver's left forearm. For the magazine cover, The Economist photoshopped onto the painting a defibrillator in the hands of Dr. Pulp, with a speech bubble saying, stand back, I am a central banker. Now there's a lot I could unpack in this photoshopped version of the painting, like defibrillators on a cadaver aren't going to do anything, or central bankers pushing away other policymakers is dangerous. I could also break down the article that the cover served to advertise, mainly that political policymakers like those in legislatures and executive branches of government have to take more significant roles during crises. But for today's episode, I'll leave it at the simple metaphor that central banks deploy their emergency lender of last resort tools in moments of crisis when the economy and financial system are in danger of dying or being terribly wounded. The minutes, hours, days, and weeks following 9-11 saw many such moments where the economy and the lives that the economy supports were in grave danger. The Federal Reserve took out its lender of last resort defibrillators and put them to good use, providing enough support to the economy to keep it afloat. On the morning of September 11th, Chair of the Federal Reserve Alan Greenspan was an ocean away from New York and Washington. Here he is describing the situation to the Financial Times.
0: Uh, As chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, I was coming back from a meeting in Zurich, the usual meetings with central bankers, and I was over the North Atlantic when my senior security person came up to me and said, the captain wants to see you. So I went up front and I was told that... uh, The eastern seaboard of the United States has been shut down. The airspace is now prohibited, and he told me the reasons as to what had happened. And uh, having basically grown up with the World Trade Center, it was an extraordinary shock to me because I knew after hearing the details that a number of the people who perished in that were people whom I knew.
2: Greenspan wasn't the only one from the Fed away from the office that day. He was accompanied by the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and three of the four other governors were also away traveling. Vice Chair Roger Ferguson was the only one in the office that fateful morning. Here's Ferguson himself with a bit of his background from the Breakfast Club radio show in January 2020.
3: Uh, and all those things came together. I, I fell in love with economics.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And you were talking about Dr. King. I, mean, I was one of those people, I think, who was very influenced by uh, one of the things he was doing before he died, which was also getting you know, blacks into the right kinds of positions in government. And so as I was growing up, in 1966, 1967, Lyndon Johnson appointed a guy named Andrew Bremer to be the first black governor of mm-hmm. the Federal Reserve. Uh, Andrew was a story of resilience, the, the child of, of uh, sharecroppers. And you know, that was newspaper front-page newspaper story for me. Um, and so because of Andrew Brimmer, 1966, 1967, and my parents, I fell in love with economics, got very interested in the Federal Reserve, and had uh, uh, the good fortune to be appointed in 1997 as the third black governor. Right. And in 1999 as the first black vice chairman. So you know what you're talking about, huh, Roger?
2: One of Vice Chair Ferguson's first responsibilities at the Fed was to lead the task force overseeing the Fed's Y2K preparations. For those of you who don't remember, Y2K refers to the new year when the clock turned from 1999 to 2000. Many early computer systems had been designed to count dates only until 1999. If the computer software wasn't updated to include the new date format, many feared they would shut down or malfunction. The phenomenon was well known in in advance, so most of the computer systems in the world were updated with plenty of time. However, there was still fear that old legacy systems would be missed and they would cause big destructions to life on the morning of January 1st, 2000. Ferguson helped the Fed prepare for potential Y2K disruptions, and although no major or systemic problems occurred in the financial system or global economy due to the date change, many of the contingency plans made and practiced for Y2K were in fact very useful in the days following 9-11. For one simple example, key officials at the Fed had access to two phones from different communication providers. This proved useful when one of the Twin Towers knocked out a Verizon communication hub when it collapsed. Another simple example includes how to set up an emergency situation war room and connect all the key decision makers in Washington and across the Federal Reserve System. Here's Ferguson speaking to Bloomberg TV about what it felt like on September 11th.
3: The first thing you confront, that I would confront, anyone confront, it was this massive uncertainty. Right? One didn't know what was going on, but you knew it had to be bad when, you know, first both the Twin Towers were on fire and I turned on the TV and saw the second plane going to the second tower. And I looked out my window and saw smoke coming from the Pentagon. And so one knew that whatever it was going on, it was big. It had hit the financial capital and the political capital of the country, uh, and everything was chaotic. So you confront uncertainty.
2: Now pay special attention to these first two communication steps that Ferguson led the Fed in taking. If you take a step back, before a central bank can follow through on its commitment to serve as a lender of last resort, it has to be available. In moments of panic like the one on 9-11, that wasn't a given.
3: And so I decided that our most important role was to keep the financial system open and operating. And so what did we do? Um, uh, number of things parallel. First was clear communication, very brief, very succinct. The Fed is open and operating, full stop. And, you know, the Fed stands ready basically to, to backstop the monetary needs of the system. That created a lot of confidence. Then we had to live up to those words using a number of technical tools that the Fed has at its uh, disposal.
2: For banks that use the Fedwire system, a technology used to send literally trillions of dollars through the financial system every day, the Fed sent a message at 9.44 a.m. saying that the system was, quote, "...fully operational at this time and will remain open until an orderly closing can be achieved." Close quote. About two hours later, the Fed issued a similar statement, this time publicly as a press statement. Here it is as narrated in a short documentary about the central bank's actions on 9-11.
4: The Federal Reserve System is open and operating. The discount window is available to meet liquidity needs.
2: And boy, was the discount window used.
4: At the discount window, the Fed lends money to banks, typically overnight, to help them maintain smooth day-to-day operations. On a normal business day in 2001, these loans totaled about $54 million. But on September 12th, the Fed lent a record $46 billion.
2: This staggering 100x increase in last resort lending from the Fed was made possible by dedicated employees at the 12 reserve banks staying late into the night, despite the fear and worry that was understandably palpable to make these discount window loans. And here again, Y2K preparation came in handy. Banks had pre-pledged collateral with the Fed to make it quicker to access the discount window funds. In the midst of the chaos, this made a significant difference in how quickly the Fed was able to get these desperately needed loans into the hands of the banks. Another way that the Fed provided emergency funds to the banking system was by using open market operations. At the time, the Fed largely relied on open market operations to keep the target interest rate where the FOMC wanted it to be. This involves taking money out or putting it into the interbank lending market.
4: On an average day in 2001, open market operations injected between 2 and $8 billion into the banking system. But on Wednesday, September 12th, the Fed injected $38 billion, more than double the previous record. On Thursday, the Fed shattered that mark with $70 billion. And the day after that, the Fed injected even more, $81 billion.
2: As Ferguson would later point out, these actions pushed the Fed's balance sheet over $1 trillion for the first time. Now, because the U.S. economy is so large, our historical political presence so dominating, and because much of global trade is done with U.S. dollars, our currency is vastly important. It turns out that not only domestic banks and domestic businesses require U.S. dollars in times of crisis, but so too do foreign banks and foreign businesses. As the institution responsible for the U.S. dollar, the Federal Reserve, in response to 9-11, opened what are called swap lines with foreign central banks, so those foreign central banks could get U.S. dollars to their banks in need. I'll go into more details about the swap lines in Episodes 6 and 7. Although the Fed took many actions on 9-11 and the days that follow, there are just two more that I'll describe. As you've been listening, I understand if all of the actions described up to now seem a bit distant. Theoretically, you can understand that it's important for the financial system to remain open and operating, but hard to see how it affects you directly. Well, these two next touch a little bit closer to normal folk. Hard cash and checks. Uh, Okay, well, the checks may not feel very normal to the young ones, but surely you've heard of them. Listen to one Fed official describe some of the obstacles they had to overcome to ensure cash was available to the public.
5: Well, once we knew that Fedwire was up and running, our attention immediately turned to the cash area. And the reason for that is that it's very normal in a crisis situation or a natural disaster for the general public to want to go out and get their hands on as much cash as possible. And so we wanted to make sure that we were in a situation where plenty of cash was available to the banks and they in turn could make it available to their customers in order to avoid any kind of a panic situation.
4: In Manhattan, all bridges and tunnels were closed, and the Fed was concerned that automated teller machines might run out of cash. To meet this potential shortage, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York immediately made special arrangements with New York City police and New Jersey state troopers. The purpose? To deliver more than $425 million to local banks.
5: Well, the first thing that we did was we told our customers, don't worry about the usual schedule for ordering cash. Normally, uh, we would ask our banks to order by noon today in order for a delivery to arrive to them tomorrow. But we told them to forget about that in this situation because, after all, there was nothing normal about uh, that particular day.
2: Now, checks are a tricky business, and even in normal times, it was quite miraculous that the system worked at all. Listen to this. One person gets a book of removable little papers from their bank. That person writes some numbers on one of the pieces of paper and with a simple signature, turns it into money to buy, say, milk and eggs at the corner market. The business, that corner market, then takes the check at the end of the day with a stack of hundreds of other checks just like it from dozens of different banks and drops them off at their bank. Dozens of businesses bring bags of checks just like this to the bank. Someone at the bank now has to figure out which checking account at which bank needs money taken out of it and which checking account needs money deposited into it. This process of sorting the checks and keeping track of who owes who and where the money needs to be taken and given is called clearing. In 2001, about a third of the country's checks were cleared by the Federal Reserve. That amounted to about 55 million checks a day. Many of them were delivered by air.
4: However, when air traffic was shut down, the Fed immediately began working on alternative methods of ground transportation.
5: Float is the amount of money that's been credited to the accounts of depositing banks that has not yet been debited to the accounts of check writers across the country. In the days following 9-11, in order to maintain confidence in the check collection system, we continued to credit depositing banks according to normal schedules. We did this knowing full well that for interterritory items that required air transportation, we would not be able to collect those checks on time. In fact, on the 12th of September, we incurred somewhere around $23 billion worth of float, which is about 30 times our historical daily average. This $23 billion represents the liquidity that we provided to the payment system.
2: So between the discount window loans, the open market operations, the extended operating hours on Fedwire, the currency swaps with foreign central banks, the cash and the checks, the Fed really came through lending in a truly last resort kind of moment. To close out this segment on 9-11, we're going to go back and listen to Alan Greenspan describe to the Financial Times what happened after the pilot had to turn him around back to Switzerland. It's a vivid tale that captures the emotions of the moment.
0: And it was not possible to get back uh, to the United States by phone. Everything was jammed. And so we we had to turn back, uh, according to Swissair, which I was flying at the time, we went back to Zurich and I got on the phone first with my wife who was an NBC correspondent and finally asked her, finally got through to her and uh, after we obviously re- counseled each other on how we both were doing I asked can you now fill me in on what actually has happened she said I'm about to go on the air so what she did is he put the cell phone in her lap and I heard what everyone else in America was hearing. And it was a real shock to me. Uh, I can't really, I can't really replicate it because uh, uh, when I eventually, as I say, arrived back in Zurich, they wanted to show me a videotape of the towers coming down. I said, I can't do that. I just don't want to, and to this day, it is very difficult for me to see that phenomenon. In any event, uh, I called the White House to get transportation back because everything was jammed, as you can imagine, and all civilian aircraft were flights were canceled. I got through to the I got through to Andy Card, the chief of staff, and he said, "I will be back to you." And they put. Uh, me on a C-17 which is a huge cargo plane flying out of Basel, Switzerland into uh, the RAF Air Force Base north of London which had become a USAF refueling stop, Uh, Mindenhall as I recall. And I then got on to a KC-10 which is a refueling large aircraft and I was the only passenger. Uh, They put me in the flight deck, and as we took off, uh, there was nothing else around. The captain of the plane said to me, I'd like you to listen to what's going on. And he put earphones in me, and I say, oh, I hear a static, and he says, that's exactly right. This is a very heavily traveled North Atlantic route that we take all the time. And there wasn't a single sound of any other aircraft. The captain said, this is eerie. I've never experienced anything else like this before. He had gotten permission uh, to fly over the site of the crisis and the smoking room. And as we arrived in U.S. Air Force, U.S. Airspace, Uh, Two F-16s got on both both sides of the wing to escort me in over the World Trade Center on my way down to Washington. And uh, I uh, just saw smoking runes and I couldn't see the, the, the towers. I used to literally be able to see the towers every day for 30 years. or as long as they were up because I actually saw them being built and so there was nothing and uh, I never did get out of that shock
2: caused by a tragic act of premeditated violence, to destruction at the hand of Mother Earth's most devastating storms. But 2005 was not the Federal Reserve's first response to major destruction following a hurricane. For
4: three days now. A new hurricane's been running loose along the southern coast. A lady called Camille, supposedly headed toward the Florida Panhandle, but, like any lady, perfectly capable of changing her mind.
5: The 7 a.m.
4: bulletin from the Weather Bureau. Camille, a small but extremely dangerous storm, is now shifting westward, moving toward the Mississippi coast. Small craft should seek safe harbor.
2: During and after natural disasters, banks often lose access to normal funding and frequently require loans from the lender of last resort. This August 1969 storm brought devastating destruction to the southern and southeastern United States. Both the Federal Reserve Banks of Richmond and Atlanta lent to banks in affected areas in response. The Federal Reserve Board has an entire section of its website dedicated to disaster preparedness and recovery resources. The page lists all of the active disasters, ranging, as this episode is drafted, from the California wildfires to flooding in the Midwest. Unfortunately, Like Camille, Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath were particularly devastating. As its
1: winds reach 39 miles per hour, it becomes a tropical storm and is given a name, Katrina. As its winds reach 115 miles an hour, Katrina turns into a category three hurricane with New Orleans in its sights. Katrina grows into a category four hurricane. A few hours later, it reaches Category 5, the highest possible rating. Winds exceed 175 miles an hour. All residents in New Orleans are ordered to evacuate. As dawn breaks, Katrina's wind speeds slow back down to a Category 4 hurricane. It makes landfall at 6 a.m., 60 miles southeast of New Orleans. by 8 a.m. there are reports that a levee has broken. The waters of Lake Pontchartrain rush in. Levees in three locations are breached.
4: And when you pull back for a wide shot, the scene is nothing short of apocalyptic. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. The Big Easy's famous Canal Street living up to its name. New Orleans is called the Big Bowl, a lake to the north, a river to the south, and canals on both sides. Most of the land in between is below sea level. When Katrina breached the levees that held the water back, the bowl was swamped. It was all enough to bring Louisiana's governor to tears today.
3: The magnitude of the situation is untenable.
2: It's, it's, actually, it's just heartbreaking. On September 1st, 2005, the Federal Reserve issued a joint public statement with the other major state and national bank regulators. First, to prevent runs on local banks, the agencies reminded the public that their deposits were insured and, despite the condition of the banks, their money was protected and guaranteed up to the defined limit. The agencies also included a list of suggested actions banks could take to help their customers like waiving fees, increasing withdrawal limits, and allowing customers to defer payments. The bank supervisors committed to being flexible and working with the banks. In normal times, banks have to be pretty strict. Thus, during emergency times, the act of loosening those rules and being flexible is in and of itself a form of lending of last resort. Governor Mark Olson of the Federal Reserve Board gave two speeches in the weeks following Hurricane Katrina about the Fed's actions. Similar to the experience in 9-11, the Fed had to divert check processing to different locations and it credited the the appropriate accounts even before the checks had been fully processed, significantly increasing the float, if you remember the term from earlier in the episode. This increase in float served effectively as an increase in lending during the crisis. The Fed also made special deliveries of cash to designated distribution points to make it easier for banks to get that cash to their customers and ATMs. Before we close out the episode for today, though, I want to take one step back and talk about climate change. It is indisputable that climate change matters, and it matters to the central bank. If 1,000-year floods, storms, or fires start happening every few years, it will have a direct effect on the payment system, on bank supervision, and of course on the lending of last resort activities of the central bank. Here's journalist Brian Chung reporting in fall 2019 about the Fed's climate change conference. Yeah, so the Federal Reserve actually just today kicking off their first ever, in the entire history of the Federal Reserve System, first conference focused on climate change. It's actually being hosted at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And this is a serious acknowledgement from Fed policymakers at the world's largest central bank that uh, climate change could be having an adverse effect on the economy and that central banks might want to consider that as part of their uh, policymaking as well. And it's not just on monetary policy. So even if you think the central bank shouldn't get involved in deciding how to fight or prevent climate change, you have to admit that the central bank needs to have smart people thinking about it. Not just how it'll affect the broader global economy, but also how big storms will affect local economies and therefore local banks. No matter the origin of the crisis, central banks stand ready to use their lender of last resort authorities to provide emergency loans to try and keep economies above water. The last resort lending in the next episode will make the last few episodes, although critical, seem like small potatoes. Coming up, the global financial crisis. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Alexander Badgett. A full transcript with links to all of the sources used and quoted in today's episode can be found at www.centralverse.org. While you're there, check out the interactive graphics describing how modern central banks work today. The theme song for this season is Land of the Retro Ones by Rage. Additional music by Josh Lippi and the Overtimers. I tweet under the name Caleb Nygard. Central banks affect the daily lives of all of us. Rate the podcast wherever you're listening, then share it with your coworkers, classmates, family, and friends. Until next time, thanks for listening.